If you've ever been to the United States and walked the streets or driven the roads, you know that Americans love to use their lawns and their windows to signal their virtues and their politics. There are mass-produced signs stating, in this house we believe, followed by a list of Democrat or Republican positions on black lives, women's rights, immigration, science, gay rights, policing, religion, free speech, guns, and so on. There are modified American flags made out of pride colors for liberals and black and blue cop flags for conservatives. Not as often, but still pretty frequently, you see a home flying the Ukrainian flag. It's remarkable since the only other non-American national flags you encounter are typically up only temporarily for certain holidays like St. Patrick's Day or Cinco de Mayo, or maybe during the World Cup or the Olympics. On Tuesday, November 8th, in just a few weeks, the U.S. is holding its next midterm elections. All 435 seats in the House of Representatives and 35 of the 100 seats in the Senate will be contested, in addition to gubernatorial races in 39 states and territories. In all this politicking, mainstream support for Ukraine remains strong. But it was only a few years ago when Donald Trump said the following at his inauguration. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. 74.2 million Americans voted for Trump just two years ago, even after the U.S. House of Representatives impeached him for withholding military aid to Kiev in order to influence Ukraine to announce an investigation into Joe Biden and to promote a discredited conspiracy theory that Ukraine, not Russia, was behind foreign interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. So what happens to American support for Ukraine if U.S. partisan politics shift again? Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On today's show, the podcast is looking at how partisan attitudes and affiliations in the United States affect levels of support for Ukraine. Before we go any further, let me note that Ukraine's war effort relies first and foremost, of course, on the men and women in Ukraine who are fighting against invading Russian troops. The questions I'm asking today on this show about U.S. support are not meant in any way to suggest that Ukrainians have no agency in this conflict and are at the mercy of American voters' whims. That said, U.S. support, in terms of arms and foreign aid, is extremely important for Ukraine. And so American domestic politics here isn't a meaningless subject. Before jumping into today's interviews, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from people like you in our international audience to sustain our everyday operations. Millions in Russia and other countries read our news coverage even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. Our team delivers Medusa's most important stories in English, and we reach thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with our special English-language newsletter and podcast. So please visit our website to make a one-time or recurring donation, and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. Okay, let's get to today's show. My first guest is Aaron Swartzbaum, a fellow at 
FPRI Eurasia program, the founder of FPRI's BMB Russia newsletter. You should sign up for that if you haven't already. And the host of the podcast, The Continent, which explores how the war in Ukraine is changing Western politics and security. The first question I asked Aaron was whether American public support for assistance to Ukraine is growing or shrinking. I would say, yeah, that the level of support we're seeing across most of Americans is at the very least remaining constant with a noticeable chunk that would support continued or escalated assistance, yes. And is it fair to say that Republicans are less likely to support Ukraine, although there's still a majority of them are still, would it still endorse more money, more guns and so on? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of nuances. Yeah, let's, what are the nuances? So it's generally the more populist wings of each party that are against this increased involvement. Um, there's a variety of reasons we can talk about them. It's just that institutionally at present, the populist wing of the Republican Party has a lot more swing in the Republican Party than the populist wing of the Democratic Party does in the Democratic Party. Mm. So the Republican establishment, so your Mitch McConnell, you know, the Senate Majority Leader, and you know, most of the mainstream Republicans, including in the military, including in other institutions outside of Congress are still generally supportive of the overall line that Biden has been taking. And I would, I would say the, the foreign policy establishments generally. Yeah. So what are the, what are the reasons on each, each wing among the populace for having doubts or questions about U.S. Uh, engagement here? Yeah. So I think on both wings, some of the, some of the rationale is pretty similar. Mm -hmm. There's a general trend of isolationism. It's a belief that we should be spending money on domestic priorities. Now, the two wings may disagree you know, how to spend very it. deeply about exactly how to spend it, exactly. <laughs> but the overall thinking is that, hey, Americans are, you know, it's difficult times with inflation, with a whole host of other issues. There's actually a belief on both sides or broadly in America now the government should be doing more, spending more money. So a belief that there's kind of a zero-sum game at play, that all of the billions of dollars that are being spent to support Ukraine could be spent at home. On the Republican side particularly, um, and I, I don't mean to make a partisan point, but there are some players who have more sympathy for Russia, generally, if not outright approval, let's say, for the invasion of Ukraine. There's this kind of right-wing populists international, <laughs> kind of an ironic choice of words, giving the, you know, internationals traditionally yeah. left-wing, but yeah, this uh, mm -hmm. kind of line running from DC to Hungary to Moscow. I'm not saying this is Putin's project or a conspiracy, but there's this kind of set of populist right-wing leaders who kind of are coalescing together more and more these days. And that has to do with cults of strength and anti- woke, whatever, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I, if you look at the way that Putin positions himself, he, he's trying to capitalize on that. Yeah. Talking about, oh, we're against a society where there's, you know, parents one and parents parent two. one, parent two. Yep, yep, yep. Um, where, you know, the marginalization of Christians. I think there's, there's a big irony in all of this that some of the more populist wings, it's not just in the U.S., some of the more populist wings across the world kind of view Russia as like, oh, the defender of Christianity and this traditional white society, frankly, I think not knowing yeah. how diverse Russia is, right? the percentage of you know, Muslims as a proportion of Russia, for instance, 
the abortion rate in Russia, much Mm -hmm. higher than in many Western countries. So Mm -hmm. there's a bit of irony there. But yeah, that would be the general kind of layout of sort of populist influence in the United States now. I think it's also worth noting about like what that means as far as, you know, specific policies, what the midterms might mean. Is this a serious issue for the midterms or do Americans, do you think American voters really care about where their candidates stand on the Ukraine war? Yeah, with some nuances, which I will again dive into, generally no. It's a, it's a national issue. It's something that people care about because there's sympathy with Ukraine generally. But I think that the predominant issue that's going to drive people to the polls is going to be the economy and it's going to be, it's going to be inflation, the pocketbook issues, which would be the case in most countries in the world. The pocketbook issues are predominant, foreign policy issues a little less so, or a lot less so, to be honest. Now, there are some statewide dynamics there. Um, Ohio, for instance, is a state that you would anticipate would vote Republican based on recent kind of trends at the uh, midterm and national elections. That race, which is between Tim Ryan and Republican J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Allergy, fairly well-known book. There's candidate quality issues. There's campaign tone. But one of the things worth noting in Ohio is that there's a decent-sized Ukrainian diaspora. And J.D. Vance at one point said, I don't particularly care what happens in Ukraine. So Hmm. it's generally not what brings most people to the polls. But if you're in the Ukrainian diaspora, that may be it's not the be-all and end-all, very, very important consideration you're making as far as right. who you're going to vote for. And I don't mean to say that that's going to be the deciding issue in Ohio overall. Sure. But for, you know... A footnote. Yeah, a footnote for my groups of minority voters or groups of different communities. Yeah, that may actually play a fairly significant role. Do you have any sense of how the Russian diaspora views this, this conflict? Anecdotally, I just know several Russian people in the United States who are quite patriotically <laughs> their their views are are not they're not entirely sympathetic to Ukraine. Yeah, I think it's a really it's a really interesting question. I think one of the interesting dynamics that an author, um, an analyst, uh, Russian Nikolai Slobin wrote in his book America, I guess the translation would be like America people live there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's basically his book explaining America to people in Russia and it's I think really, really interesting to hear some of his observations, not American, about society I grew up in. One of the interesting dynamics he notes is that among the Russian diaspora, there isn't really political organization. The Russian, as a kind of group, politically don't necessarily associate with each other. Think of the way that Armenians do, for instance. There's a fairly well-organized Armenian lobby, community groups, and with Russians, I mean, of course, there's places, you know, like Brighton Beach, there's large communities, but yeah, not like organized voting. So interesting. I think it depends. I mean, there's there's the kind of Soviet Russians, and I, I don't mean to read any you know, value into that specifically, but people who came a long time ago at the beginning of the beginning of the 90s may have very radically different views than Russians who've arrived more recently. And then there's, I guess, overall... I guess, socialization, the way, you know, the overall Russian worldview. And I, I don't mean to say the Russian mentality or the Russian mindset, lots of yep. problematic, you know, features about that kind of argument. But the way that Russia sees its, I would call it the near abroad, the countries and its influence, where Russia ought to have influence. So I think there's not really a, a way to generalize. The anecdote I have heard from Brighton Beach is that it seems like 
pro-Ukrainian sentiments has generally went up. I mean, Breda Beach at one point was also called Little Odessa, so right. it may just generally be a more Ukraine-centric place than before. But yeah, I think it's I think it's hard to generalize, and I don't think that expat Russians are going to have a particularly important swing role in this right. in this yeah midterm race generally. And so you said earlier that the populists in the Republican Party currently hold more sway than they do in the Democratic Party. Now, do you think that that will influence the results this coming November? So I would want to step back a little bit. I think talking about the sway the populists hold, I meant that more institutionally. I think, okay. I think in the actual races... I'm not sure that's going to be the deciding issue, as I said. I don't think what is motivating Republicans to turn out is necessarily Ukraine specifically. No, it's no, definitely. That. I just mean kind of like separate from the Ukraine issue. Because if we kind of assume that the populists are generally less supportive of American engagement in Ukraine than the Biden administration and the kind of mainstream are going with right now, if populists benefit or if they, if they gain in November then presumably that erodes U.S. support in some, in some way eventually. But even if, even if Ukraine's not the deciding factor in the November elections. Yeah, possibly, but I think more marginally. I mean, looking at the Senate, where I think a single senator has a lot more ability to hold up the provision of aid or to hold up votes. Yeah. And they were talking about, let's assume some of the Republican populists do win. That's still not a huge shift in the overall number of seats. And I think... Republicans with, by the way, Democratic support. I mean, it looks like as far as projections show that it might be 50-50 in favor of Democrats or it might be Republicans having a, a several seat advantage, but this is not going to be, you know, a major shift, you know, based on based on the projections. Yeah. So I think I think it's gonna be marginal at most this time. Now, if Trump wins in 2024, that may be a significantly bigger deal okay. as far as Ukraine. But that's also farther off. The war has a lot of time to you know, change course or, or develop before right. that happens. But even if, I mean, even if like, and hopefully the war is long over by then, you know, presumably U.S. support for Ukraine, for the government in Kiev will be a longstanding issue. I mean, you know, even if Ukraine wins a resounding victory, they'll be like, the support will be necessary for rebuilding and so on. So it's it's an issue that's not going to go away, even though it's in the future. It's not going to go away. Um, I brought some sentiment and polling data with me for some show and tell today. Yeah, please. The, uh, show, show, show and tell, please. There was recently a really interesting report from the Eurasia Group Foundation, which does a lot of polling about how foreign policy intersects with the preferences of Americans. So they cited in this report actually data from Pew, that showed that Americans are more optimistic about Ukraine's prospects in the war. 55% of Americans in May of this year were extremely or very concerned about Ukraine's defeat. Um, that's now down to 38% as of September. And that's presumably a response to all the headlines about the counteroffensive and the you know, Russian retreats and so on. Yeah. Um, and I think last the poll was taken, that was when Russia was mounting a, an offensive in um, Donetsk and Luhansk and having right. some success on the ground in doing so. Yeah. Um, the other data point from that polling is that among Republicans and Republican-leading independents, 
32% say the U.S. is providing too much support for the war, up from 9% in March. So like I said, that's a, that's a growing quantity. So they're starting to get, they're losing patience for support. Yes, but it's not a majority. And I think, right. I think this may relate to kind of, again, the, the, the flip side of Ukraine's success, the belief that, hey, Ukraine's winning and doing fine, depends on the extent to, to which the U.S. is you know, responsible for that. There's a lot of data points that the biggest supplier of tanks to Ukraine's military is actually Russia because of captured mm-hmm. equipment now. The West has not given you know, Western battle tanks to, to Ukraine. The other, I think, two data points I would include here is that Biden's conduct of the war in the sense, how he's handled it, he has a, a 15% net approval rating or 15 percentage points, more specifically, net approval rating. So one five. So 15% more or 15 percentage points more you know, people think he's doing a good job or a somewhat good job than people who think he's doing a somewhat bad or very bad job. So okay. yeah, he's, he's viewed as performing well on the issue. And I think many people, you know, despite calls, no more aid, lots more aid. I think the general establishment in the foreign policy space, myself included, um, believe he's done a fairly good job managing the conflict, providing aid, but making clear the lines that the U.S. will not cross the boundaries. And I I think telegraphing that to Russia to make clear the extent of the involvement we're capable, the extent of the involvement we're capable of mustering or or ready to provide. So from this Eurasia Group Foundation data, asks people who are responding to this survey, what are the goals they think are most important in providing aid or in responding to Russia's invasion? And the goal that ranks first was avoiding direct war between nuclear armed powers, namely the US and Russia. And that ranks even above preventing the suffering of Ukrainians or defending democratic countries from authoritarian ones. And I think Americans correctly assess that Biden has kept the United States out of the war. Mm-hmm. Russia's protested to the contrary, but the United States has not been a direct belligerent. And I think Biden has, we talked about some of these red lines, what we will and won't do. Right. That would be things like providing fighter jets so far, modern Western fighter jets, providing battle tanks, modern ones, again, not legacy Soviet hardware, and then yeah. providing, you could call them offensive weapons, so cruise missiles, HIMARS has a kind of rocket called ATACMS, which is, I think, a very great acronym. Sounds like a candy. Yeah, that can re- <laughs> but that can uh, reach considerably farther. I want to say uh, up to like 300 kilometers. That would really allow Ukraine to be much more aggressive about attacking into Russia proper. Um, and we've made it clear that is not going to not going to be supplied at least currently. For more about the effects of Putin's threats to resort to nuclear weapons. I spoke to Dr. Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at the Mechnikov National University in Odessa, where he's also the director of the Center for International Studies. Currently, Dr. Dubovik is a visiting professor at Tufts University in Massachusetts. He thinks the Biden administration and the U.S. political establishment are actually committed to more direct conflict with Russia in the Ukraine war. And he's also convinced that many Americans are on board with this confrontation out of a sense of duty to stand up to aggression and a fear of appearing cowardly and weak. I mean, of course, they're doing it for a reason. Uh, the, the Moscow does to 
scare everyone uh, from helping Ukraine and not to cross certain red lines and not give too much assistance to Ukraine and not give too many weapons to Ukraine and so on. Uh, but at the same time, a partial American political class, at least in establishment, uh, sees it for a good reason as a sign of weakness of Russia. And that they are resorting to this last resort of, uh, you know, threatening to use nuclear weapons. It means that everything else is not working. In terms of general public mood in America, people are, you know, generally afraid that this might take place and might drag America in a more direct way into the conflict. In fact, uh, there is a promise uh, on the part of this administration in U.S. that they will be taking more active role in the conflict uh, militarily. If this happens, uh, there will be a devastating conventional weapons uh, strike of resiliation against Russian troops in Ukraine, which could be indeed a prologue to a bigger conflict, internationalized conflict, and direct confrontation where American troops might be in danger or American allies in Europe might be in danger. But uh, there seems to be an understanding uh, with uh, decision makers in the West that that should be done, you know, for, for Russia to be contained or deterred rather from making this step, if they're considering it, they need to understand that there will be a massive retaliation. And uh, I personally, for a while, was uh, skeptical and suspicious about whether the West will actually retaliate in such a way. But in recent months and weeks, I've been hearing a lot of colleagues, uh, experts and, and military people as well, who say that, yes, there is definitely a plan or several plans, actually, that one of them would be put in, uh, into an uh, into execution that will be carried out uh, if Russia indeed uses a uh, weapon of mass destruction. And then we should also remember that it would be also a biological weapon, a chemical weapon, not just necessarily used a nuclear weapon. So Americans are kind of scared of this, uh, but it's always a combination of American public opinion. You know, some people say, we've discussed this already at greater lengths, uh, let's not uh, be a solution to each and every conflict and problem in the world. Let's not overstretch uh, our presence uh, globally. Let's focus on other issues, domestically and so on. And others have always believed that there is a bigger duty and responsibility for America as a great power to, as a superpower, to be influential in certain cases like this one, uh, you know, Russian aggression against Ukraine, and that uh, we should be coward, we should be backing down, we should be standing down just because Russia threatens us. You know, so therefore, if we show everyone that we're afraid of Russian threats, that also will be a sign of our weakness. And that's not something we would like to show to everyone, including China, for instance, because the national strategy, uh, security threats just came out. And of course, uh, China is still number one, uh, strategically speaking, a threat and challenge for US. So one thing, uh, again, Americans don't want to show, specifically this administration, which is more of a traditional foreign policy thinking administration. You don't want to show witness. So if Russia threatens you with tactical nukes in Ukraine, you say, fine, if you want to up the ante and escalate, we're ready for escalation as well. We would like to avoid this escalation. That's a line from this administration, as we know it, for months now already. So let's not provoke Russia to escalate. But if Russia chooses to escalate, we're ready for escalation as well. And that is important for us, for our role in the world, uh, defending our allies. For American leadership in the world, or belief in American leadership in the world, and our alliances, we need to defend alliances, and that's what we're going to do. Of course, no one wants direct confrontation with Russia or Third World War or something like that, or American soldiers dying, uh, you know, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russian troops. But uh, at the same time, if this is the world uh, we live in, and if this is the price of what we need to stand up for, 
we, what we believe in terms of our values, in terms of our interests, because it's not just values, it's also interests. Supporting Ukraine and our allies in Europe is, is, is among our interests. And a lot of Americans are actually convinced, okay, let's, let's do it. Do you get any sense that Russian saber-rattling about its nuclear deterrent, is that impacting American public perceptions or about the war at all? Like, are they, um, I don't know if there's been polling on this yet, but do you get any sense that Americans, either by party difference or just generally, when they hear Russia threaten or talk, just talk about its nuclear deterrent, you know, you've mentioned it, that that avoiding nuclear war is a big one for the Americans. Do they do Americans get the sense that they're flirting with nuclear war? I think we're seeing that more in the rhetoric used by populists that like, oh, like Biden warmongers are driving us towards nuclear war. They're right. trying to start a war with Russia. And I think we've seen that particularly. I think people are concerned about nuclear war, but I also want to float that a lot of times people indicate concern because the issue is raised to them in the survey itself. Yeah. Like no one's going to be asked, hey, do you like the idea of nuclear war, which may be something nobody was thinking about mm-hmm. at all. And then, of course, everyone's going to say, no, I do not. I do not want to be vaporized and or, you know, live in an apocalyptic dystopian future. Like, yeah, no one's interested in that. So right. hard to measure exactly how salient that issue is compared to, again, your inflation issues or otherwise day to day. I think it is, though, it's like a nuclear policy, nuclear weapons policy is relevant in a way today that it hasn't been throughout my lifetime, at least since the Cold War. Um, it's a factor there. Are American politicians talking about that in their campaigns yet? Or is it not? Is it, it's, it's still something that's more resigned to the headlines and to things that Putin says in his speeches? I think it's more for the headlines. I, I don't think this is like a real, it may come up in, you know, foreign policy questions at, at debates, but I, I don't think, I don't think this is what, you know, campaigns are being waged over. That would be. We're not getting the, what was that uh, with the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young song and like the bombs bursting? It was like an anti-Reagan ad. You know the one I'm talking about? I don't. I think it's, I don't know if it's like Mondale or one of those guys, but like they, they did like a, a, a campaign ad where it's like, I think it was like rockets firing and they're playing the like some Crosby, Stills, Nash Young song, Teach Your Children or something, or, and I can't remember it now, but you're, that's not that's not entering the political discourse yet is what you're saying. Not, not yet. And I think, look, I think there's a kind of understanding that at least so far, this is very rhetorical yeah. from Putin. Like we haven't seen, we haven't seen the activation or mobilization in the places where Russia keeps its actual nuclear weapons. So this hasn't become like a, a tactical consideration. It's more Russia saying, oh, we'll do, we'll do anything we need to in order to defend Russia. But Ukraine has struck into Russia before. And sure. even before it struck the you know, Kerch Bridge over this you know, past weekend, and that did not lead to Russia nuking Ukraine. Let's hope it does not Never go does, that way. Yeah. Right. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about is that the comparisons are, it's flawed inherently because the United States is a democracy, Russia is not. But in the political discourse in Russia, so much of the conversation about the war in Ukraine, it's all framed in these existential terms, right? Like Russia doesn't survive if, if it loses in Ukraine and it's all, the existence is at stake and fate is at stake. This is obviously not the way Americans feel about the war, although maybe, maybe that's not true. I was actually, I interviewed Olga Olikar a couple of weeks ago 
and I asked her something. I asked her basically, like, do the Russians have an inherent advantage when it comes to kind of the framing? Because they when they talk about this in existential terms, and the Americans don't. And she answered that the more saber rattling they do with the nukes, the more it kind of does become existential for the West and for the Americans. I can see that on in strategic terms, I suppose, but in everyday terms, like I mean, I guess, maybe we've already been talking about this. Maybe the question is moot, but. How do you think American voters look at this issue in terms of its importance, you know, acknowledging that it's the money stuff that matters the most, like the stuff that affects whether they can go on vacation or whatnot, like the basics, but where do they rate this, this conflict? It's not like pocketbook issues. And then Ukraine It's pocketbook issues, culture issues, gun violence, infrastructure. Yeah. And then, you know, add a few more bullet points after that. And then the war in, in Ukraine. Does that, and does that give, does that give politicians more um, room to maneuver because it's it's not something that Americans are watching that closely, or is it a restricting thing? And it means that at some point they're going to hit a red line with American voters in terms of spending or just riskiness in terms of of confrontation with Moscow. Like, do you see that as a as an obstacle or as an advantage to to policymakers? Hard to know what the red line would be for U.S. supports. I think there's also the possibility that. I don't think, I think the populists are, are pretty genuine in their beliefs that the U.S. should not be as involved abroad. Uh-huh. But there's also, you know, some differentiation just to cast, you know, uh, kind of contrast with the Biden administration, whether or not that's an actual, like, serious or sincere political belief that just that, hey, we're going to be different. This is the reason that a lot of populists in Europe, you know, before the war started, were curious or, you know, say, footsie with Putin or claimed to be pro-Russia. I don't think it actually had anything to do with Russia per se. I think it had to do with showing that they were different and offering you know, a different worldview. And of course, when the war started and being pro-Russia actually meant something to Europe, they backed away. They got less supportive. We saw that, I think, with, with American politics too, right? I mean, it, at least during the Trump presidency, you saw wildly different views on Putin and on Russia among Democrats and Republicans. And I think they were probably responding not so much to whatever they actually thought about these places or people like, I don't know, I doubt most Republicans think about Putin very much in the day. But if you ask them in a poll, or if you just, I mean, in terms of discourse, if the media is running stories about how Trump's in bed with Putin and you don't believe it, you're going to naturally say like, okay, the, the, you know, if the establishment says this is bad and I'm against the establishment, then that's I'm okay with that then. So this, they're responding to kind of partisan cues, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's certainly uh, some folks within the Democratic Party because of the Trump administration who are kind of reflexively against anything relating to Russia, regardless of the, hey, we're having more discussions about limiting nuclear weapons. Like, no, we can't deal with the Russians. And it's like, there's actually agreements, even now, by the way, even now between Russian elites and US elites, seems like still kind of, fairly stable consensus that, yes, we actually should renew STARVE and we should not be getting into an open nuclear arms race, maybe even especially now, given what's happening. <laughs> I mean, I, I really have to wonder, speaking of the risk of like ballistic missiles to Russia from Ukraine, I have to wonder what some of the leaders in Ukraine are thinking. They're thinking there's a power um, next to us that, at least on television and maybe in some of its leaders' heads, are committed to the destruction, not only of our state, but of Ukrainian nationality. They're threatening to use nuclear weapons. And there's no state in the world that can offer a credible security guarantee. And I can think of something they might want to acquire that would ensure 
that their security will be protected. And that'd be a very dark direction. And I think a consideration that's going to be, you mentioned, you know, what's going to happen after this war, which we hope ends soon. I think that's going to be a very relevant discussion. Mm-hmm. And in right. case I'm not being clear for those listening, I mean, Ukraine, <laughs> Ukraine developing nuclear weapons. Right. Which it has to know how to do. There's a very advanced, you know, nuclear industry there. I, I think that it, it may come up as a concern. Uh-huh. And that's something that the Russians have already accused Ukraine of wanting. That's part of the rhetoric is, you know, that they want a bomb or they want bombs again, I guess, since they, you know, used to have Soviet. Well, Russia's done the one thing that has. It would, yes, that. exactly. Right. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of irony, a lot of ironies in, in, in some of the, yeah. I mean, tragedy most of all, but some irony on one side of Right. What happens if Trump or if DeSantis or some Trumper person wins the presidency in the next U.S. presidential race? Is the rest of the establishment and Congress so pro-Ukraine support that it won't really matter? Or are the Trumpers capable of just sort of switching to be rabidly pro-Ukraine if they need to be? Like, is what do you, what do you foresee there? There's a lot of depends here. I think DeSantis, if he becomes president, would be much more establishment in his foreign policy outlook. Hmm. I think like his bread and butter is cultural issues here in the States, but I'm not sure he's necessarily looking to rock the boat on the foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Is Trump really like out on his own when it comes to that or, or are there other? I think the, the point here is it depends like what Trump can get for his involvements or support of each side. Like yeah. Trump was accused of being, you know, for Russia and Putin's pocket, all number of uh, accusations. He was also though the first president to supply offensive or lethal weapons to Ukraine, he started sending javelin rockets that Obama had refused to. So he has given Ukraine weapons before. The question Mm -hmm. is whether that's for dirt on Biden or dirt on his opponent. So it's not inconceivable that he might, I don't know if he'd be supportive in the same way, but yeah, it will depend on his, you know, perceived self-interest, I think. Kind Mm -hmm. of a wild card. Mm -hmm. But I think he might jam up provision of aid if he thinks he can profit from making some kind of peace deal. I don't think he would be able to very easily, mind you. I think Russia has interests in the war and Ukraine has interests too. That's my, that's my, um, the message I want to leave with the the listening audience is that the United States is not the only country in the world with agency. Sure. That Russia and Ukraine each have reasons for fighting and we can't just say stop. Right. There's more at play there. There's politics. There's all yeah, sorts yeah. Of- but so you're saying that you you think it's impossible to know. I guess where you're saying it, the way it could change is if Trump or someone who's similarly kind of transactional in their administrative policies, if they see a way to profit from delaying or seeking, you know, some kind of concessions and peace, like that could that they could go that route. Yeah. Where then the- I would say it's probably worse for Ukraine mm-hmm. in the aggregate, but because of the the ambiguity about how Trump is going to be speaking or acting in any given day, it's more ambiguous than is being being covered as. It's not if Trump wins, Ukraine's host. And again, yeah. there's the time factor here. Um, this See how the it is in two the years, context, yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe a lot more settled by the time that's even possible. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. On today's show, you heard from Aaron Swartzbaum, a fellow at FPRI Eurasia program, the founder of FPRI's BMB Russia newsletter, and the host of the podcast, The Continent. And I also spoke to Dr. Volodymyr Dubovic, an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at the Mechnikov National University in Odessa. 
Thanks for tuning in. On future episodes of the show, we'll be discussing the impact of sanctions on Russian commercial aviation, the future of Chechnya's dictatorship, and more. See you next week.